Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. Scripture reading this morning will be from Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. Genesis 8, 20 and 21. That is page 11 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. Genesis 8, 20 and 21. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every every living thing as I have done. You may be seated. Good morning. God is good all the time. We have a lot of friends that live in the Bowling Green area, so last night we were texting frantically just trying to make sure that everybody was okay, and same thing with Middle Tennessee. We have a lot of family and friends there, and everybody that we were able to reach and everybody that responded, thankfully, everybody's safe. Uh, Maybe some, you know, storm damage here or there, but on the whole, no houses of our folks were, uh, you know, leveled and and everybody is good. So I'm very thankful for that. And I'm uh, this morning can definitely say with confidence that God is good. And I'm grateful that every one of ours, that they're safe. And, but there are some that are not, there are those that have lost lives and those that have lost homes. So I want to remember them in prayer. If you'll join me for a second, Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, and we thank you, Lord, for your blessings spiritually and temporally. Father, we thank you that you have loved us with a great love, so much that you sent your Son to die for our sins. And Father, we're unworthy or undeserving of that precious gift, and so obviously being undeserving, we can definitely note that it is a gift. It's given to us out of your love and by your grace. Father, we pray for all those who were in the path of the tornado last night, those that may have lost homes or may have lost lives. We pray, Father, for them, for their families, for the rescue workers and those that will be among them. And Father, if there is a way that we can help to bring relief in any way, we know that you'll show us that way that we can help. But Father, we're fortunate and we're very thankful that uh, many of us here were unscathed. We're thankful, Father, that uh, we're here today to worship you, to give you the praise and adoration, Father, that you're so deserving of. So this attempt of our worship as we give it to you, Father, feeble though it may be, we give it with our whole hearts, adoring you, praising you, exalting you above all that is. For you are the creator of heaven and earth. You're the giver of life. You're the author of salvation. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. When you look from the time that sin entered and man is expelled from the garden, one thing that you see pretty quickly is that sacrifice was necessary. 
Adam and Eve had fixed uh, garments from, uh, you know, some of the figs, the leaves, and, and shrubbery to cover themselves, but God clothed them with garments of skin. So that tells you right there that from the time of sin, sacrifice has been necessary. Blood has had to be shed. And so he gave them those garments of skin. And then as you go on, you have Cain and Abel who were to make an offering to the Lord. Obviously, God regarded one, but he didn't regard the other. We know from the book of Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we read in the book of Hebrews how uh, Abel offered a more worthy sacrifice as opposed to his brother. So obviously, one listened to God and the other may not have. And so there you have offerings brought to the Lord, sacrifice and offerings. And only after the flood do we ever read about the first altar that was ever made. I'm prone to believe that uh, Noah, having been carried by God through a global flood because he was a good man, a righteous man, I suspect Noah knew that God didn't have to spare him but that he did. And I believe that Noah in part wanted to show as an offering of gratitude and appreciation to God for what he has done. He, he gave this offering. Obviously he would have known and would have been told about what is an acceptable and, and, and good way to worship the Lord. But hopefully it, it, when you think about worship, there are a lot of different feelings that people have. For example, you'll never find in Scripture any notion of modern or traditional worship. You'll never see those two words. There is just worship. And so a lot of people today, they want to make it into something, and they say, we've got to do this to make it meaningful. We've got to do this to make it special. I get where they're coming from, but my point of view is, how can you assign meaning to something that God has already given meaning to. You know, for example, the Lord's Supper that we just partook of, the bread and the cup. You and I cannot make that any more special than what God has already made it because that's the body and the blood of the Lord that has been shed on the cross. And so when people say, well, we got to do this to make it special, to put more emphasis on it, that's, that's wrong thinking. If the proper emphasis isn't on it, it's not because of what you or I do, it's because of where our heart is. And so what is the meaning of worship? One thing that we got to get clear right from the get-go. As Paul was speaking to the Athenians, he says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So, Let's dispel any inclination someone may have that God needs us to do this. God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need our worship. He will be God without it. But it's for us to give, and there's a good reason why. Now, I want you to bear with me because I think uh, some of you may appreciate this, some of you may not. Uh, there are nuanced terms used in the Bible but there are about three of them, and they're all translated as worship. Just as there are about four Greek terms that are all translated as love. But they have their individual nuances, and without understanding that, um, you know, it, it, 
it, it's kind of a little bit lost. So if I were to ask you, what is worship? You know, what's your definition of worship? You know, someone could write down, well, I think worship is this, I think worship is that. And we may be right and we may be partially right or not right at all. And so let's let scripture define this for us. The word worship uh, is, it derives from a word that means, uh, it has to do with acknowledgement, really. But there, I, I came across it's, it's a, a, a marital ceremony from the 16th century. And I want you to notice the words of this. With this ring I thee wed, this gold and silver I give thee, with my body I thee worship, and with all my worldly goods I thee endow. So if you're getting married in 1549 in England, this would have been said when you exchange rings. But obviously you see the word worship there. And my body, with my body, I thee worship. Now, although the, these spousal duties were religiously grounded, worship here doesn't imply some overly romantic devotion, and it doesn't play fast and loose with what pertained properly only to God. So in the 16th century, the groom wasn't referring to the worship of his wife as some inward disposition that would manifest from that point on, but he was referring to worship with what he was actually doing. That is sharing his wealth, his riches with her. So the word worship, it's, it's got a lot of baggage and sometimes it's just altogether not clear what it means. So there's one word that we use or that we see in the New Testament, proskunesis. And the example of this would be in Acts chapter 10. Peter was coming in and Cornelius met him fell down at his feet and, proskunesin, worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, I myself am a man also. Okay, so one word has to do with what you do with your body. Now think about this. <clears throat> I've, I've been to concerts before, and, you know, I remember when I was a kid in the 90s watching videos of some of the concerts of Michael Jackson. And I never understood why all these people were just so overly emotional, crying, bawling their heads out, and some of them fainting and just reaching. And I'm sitting there, looking, and I look back on that, and I go, you know, they're worshiping that guy. What they are doing with their bodies, they are, in a sense, worshiping a person. Think about that. Now, there's a difference in admiring someone's gifts and talents and their ability to sing or entertain or whatever the case is. But this whole notion of just clamoring and stuff. It's just like when you see the video of when the former, uh, the former dictator of North Korea died and they're parading him through the streets of North Korea. And you know, pay attention, look it up on YouTube, pay attention to what all the people are doing. They are showing, uh, uh, they are showing it, it. Mourning is what they're doing, but the way they're doing it, you're like, you know, this is almost worshipful of who this guy was. So what do we do with our bodies? So Cornelius, he fell down at his feet and he worshiped him. And you know, we do things. For example, we stand for the reading of scripture. That is a bodily response. Nehemiah chapter eight, when Nehemiah opened the book of the law or when Ezra opened the book of the law, everybody stood and they were attentive. And guess what? He read from the book of the law from morning to midday. 
So next time I give a passage that's like five verses or more long, just go back and read Nehemiah 8 and wah. And that's the thing. It's like, well, we got to, you know, all right, all right, come on, let's fit it into time, this, that, and the other. But they stood for the reading of Scripture. We stand as well. When we pray, what do we do? We bow our heads. Now, I remember when I was a kid uh, and even a young adult, there were some of the elderly brethren that whenever someone said a prayer, they would kneel to one knee. Do y'all remember people doing that? Was that just a Tennessee thing? I don't know. Yeah. And so, you, you know, with, with our bodies, the way we respond to the Lord can be one way that we worship Him. You know, will I, will I stand in His presence or to my knees will I fall? I can only imagine as what the song says. So, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, at the end, give what I think is the meaning of worship based on these terms. So there's the one, uh, proskonesis. Anytime you see someone doing something physically, or if it says they fell down and worship, more often than not, this is the term you're going to see because it has to do with what you do with your body. Secondly is a word, latreia. And we see this reflected in Luke 2, 37. Anna worshiped, Lutreusa with fasting and prayer. So the very specific things that she was doing, she was fasting and she was praying, and that was how she was worshiping in that point. Now this term was used uh, quite often in regard to uh, the tasks that were done or performed with regard to worship. In the book of Hebrews, this word is used in this particular vein when referring to the worship in the temple and the tabernacle. By the way, you recall when Satan says to Jesus in the wilderness, if you will but fall down and worship me, I will give you all these things. Now, Satan used the word proskunesis, but Jesus replying, you shall worship the Lord your God only and him shall you serve. The first word was that proskuneus. The word in him shall you serve only is this term, latreia. You do not give to anybody else what is solely reserved to God. I was talking to a friend of mine. I've got a few friends who, uh, they're former preachers in the Lord's church, and they have gone on to, to other traditions. And I was having a discussion with one, and I said, you know, I, I look, looked into this just trying to learn more. I said, but I said, you know, there are just some things I couldn't get past. And he said, well, what, what was it that you couldn't get past? I said, well... I said, I, get, I, I really can't get past praying to Mary. I just can't get past that. I can't get past praying to a specific block of people that the authorities say are saints. I just can't get past that. You know, there is but one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Why, why would I ever need to say something to the blessed Mary? And by the way, if you're going to get on to me for calling her the Blessed Mary, you need to read Luke chapters 1 and 2. She is called blessed three times in there. I'm only using scriptural language. But why would I need to invoke her? Why would I need to invoke anybody else? I can go straight to my Father through my Savior. Him only shall you serve, worship. There's one other term, and this is the last one, then I'll move on from this. 
It's uh, called, in English, we say liturgy. You may have heard that word used before. As they ministered to the Lord, liturgy to the Lord literally, uh, and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. This word is translated as service in Luke 1.23. When Zechariah was going in to do his priestly service uh, uh, there in the temple and, and offer on the altar of incense, this is the word that was used there. Uh, it's, re, it's translated as offering in Philippians 2.17 and worship in Hebrews 9.21. But we see it here. Now, if you ever read Acts 13.1 and 2, they minister to the Lord. You've probably just read that and just kept on going right by it. But they were in worship at that point is what they were doing. So, okay, you put all these words together, and here's what I think you get. First of all, you physically show submission. When you put all these words together, to worship means that I submit myself to God, giving him the recognition and honor he deserves. I bow my head, I kneel, I prostrate myself, I give him my adoration and recognizing how great he is and how in comparison, I am but a lowly creation upon whom he has showered his grace and love despite me not functioning as he intended for me to do so. So I, I willfully submit to the Lord in any way possible. It can be bodily and it should be bodily. Just as if Cornelius fell down at the feet of Peter and worshiped him, and Peter said, now look, stand up. I too am just a man. Peter recognized, I am not deserving of this. And you might understand Cornelius's dilemma. He has this vision, and having the vision that he has, he thinks, I am going to meet a very holy person. And so you want to give to them the correct uh, recognition. And so he probably didn't think there was anything wrong with what he was doing, but there was. So when I worship, I physically so show submission. Second, I deprive myself. There are specific actions that you and I can take that are self-depriving. Fasting is one of them. And the goal of fasting in those times, and hopefully in our own time, is to deny yourself, your body, what it needs so that you can solely focus your heart and your mind on God. I deny myself to focus entirely on Him and those attributes I'm aware of because God is so great that I cannot fully know Him. Yet the awe inspired within me causes me to seek Him. Finally, there are ways in which I worship Him and I don't get to decide what those ways are. He tells me he tells us all, here's how you worship. He told a couple of priests in the book of Leviticus, Nadab and Abihu, how he was to be worshiped. And one or both of them had this grand idea that they were going to take strange fire and worship him. Now, God had already said, with regard to this offering, here's where you get the fire. But they go and they, and you might think it's such a small thing. When you don't regard the holiness of God and you act out of your own, well, I am giving it to God because I think God would love it. Well, won't you look and see if he loves it? 
because they offered that strange fire in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. And because it was strange fire, some versions say profane fire, the Lord struck them, struck them dead. And some people go, wow, that's, that's a little harsh, don't you think? I mean, maybe they had the best of intentions. Maybe they did. But when God tells you to do something a specific way, do it a specific way. And if he tells you not to do something, well, then don't do it. This is not hard. We've all had parents, most of us, right? Well, we've all had parents, but you know what I mean is most of us had them around to, to, to direct us and to show us how we ought to do things. You know, when we would go, when I was a kid, we would go uh, to the funeral home on occasion when folks uh, at, at church had passed away. And we get there, I always got a talking to before we went in. Now, Stephen, we're going to go in here, and you remember whosoever, their loved one has passed away. You're to be still. You're to be quiet. Do not act up at all. Be as boring as what you feel this atmosphere is going to be. Because if you don't, right? So you go in and you, you know, can't, when you're a kid, you can't stand still. You got to be moving, doing something. And you know what? You start doing this rocking and the flick in the ear and you, ah, stand still. Yes, sir. We understand this. Parents have told us what to do. Why is it so difficult when God tells us something to do? Worship, if you will read the book of Hebrews, if you will read the book of Revelation, worship is derivative from heaven. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. If you feel like it, hop on over there with me, and I'll read this and, and uh, make that point. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. The goal that the author is aiming at is letting the Hebrew Christians know that if you go back to the temple there in Jerusalem, you're actually no longer worshiping God. That is really meaningless now that Jesus has come and now that Jesus has offered himself and has ascended to the right hand of God. Hebrews 8 verse 1, now this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. A minister, by the way, that word minister, it's not your typical word, deacon, uh, it's liturgy. He is a liturgist, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not for man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. 
So you notice here that the temple that was on earth was a copy and shadow of the heavenly thing. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God and is our high priest in the actual thing. So we are still, if you will, for the lack of a better term, somewhat of a copy and shadow, even though you read on later in the book of Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews chapter 12, when he speaks about the worship, he says, you know, we have come to Mount Zion in the heavens. So there's this real neat thing when you read it. Uh, it's almost as if the author is, is conveying the point that when we come together to worship, we are joining a procession that is already ongoing in heaven. We are not going to the actual copy and shadow, but by faith, we are actually going to the heavens. Now, here's something that, uh, that I really like in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. I'll point out a couple of things to you. The very last book of the Bible, if you wish to turn there. You know, we read Revelation and we try to always figure out the end times, when is Jesus coming, those sorts of things. Think about this. Try to read Revelation and just ask yourself the question, what are they doing in there? Because you're seeing the worship of heaven as John is receiving these revelations. So, uh, for example, Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. I love this. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. Uh, they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now think about this. They do not rest day or night. When you and I got up this morning and were getting ready, they were praising God. They are praising Him now still. When we lay our heads down to go to bed tonight, those angelic creatures will be praising our God. Let's read on. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him, proskuneo, who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Look down at chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. Chapter 5, beginning with verse 9. <clears throat> and they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. I want to point out here, uh, whenever you read in the New Testament the word priests, it's always, always, always used of God's children, of Christians. There's not one special class of people. We are all priests. And well, what does a priest do? A priest was responsible for maintaining what was sacred. Sacred space, for one, and worship and various other things. Okay, read on. Then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels around the living throne, excuse me, around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So you see, there's a lot of praising that's going on. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1 and verse 7, there's the mention of a scroll. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside on the back, sealed with seven seals. Uh, verse 7, then he, this is the lamb, came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So you've got praise of God, you've got a scroll, which we, would, we could equate with our scriptures, but then within that scroll is the will and the word of God. And all of chapter 6 and onward is the Lamb saying this is the will of God. Here's what God has said. We read several times, there's one, two, three different mentions of an altar in heaven. Uh, Revelation 6, verse 9, chapter 8, verse 3, chapter 9, verse 13, and what's so interesting in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10, uh, the author says of the priest there at the temple, we have an altar they cannot eat from. And he was speaking about the Lord's Supper. If you think about it, our, our altar, they can't eat from that because they have not confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. They have not turned to him and away from the law. They have not been buried with him in baptism. They are still down there at that temple. But I want to point out one last thing. If you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 7, please. Looking at all these things, uh, the point I was trying to make is that, you know, God determines how we're to worship. And you see that worship on earth was derivative from worship in heaven. And we've just looked, and you read the book of Revelation and just take note of the worshipful things that you can see corresponding to how we worship. That's a pretty good exercise. Forget about trying to understand all the symbolism. Just, just do that. Because we have to be cautious to do the things as he has prescribed that were handed down by the apostles and prevailed until people started to infuse traditions within worship. Mark chapter 7, beginning with verse 6. And he answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, what brought this on? They were having a meal, and some of the Pharisees came around, and they said, do, do your disciples not hold to the traditions of the elders? Do they not wash their hands? Now, you and I think of washing our hands as just something hygienic, right? Wash your hands, get the germs off, go and eat. Their notion of washing hands was more spiritual than it was just hygienic, because let's say you've gone through the marketplace, and maybe you have inadvertently brushed up against the Gentile or say a woman who is uh, in a state of uncleanliness due to the time of the month. So, okay, 
maybe you touched something that wasn't exactly kosher. So before you eat, from the tip of your middle finger all the way down to the bend of your elbow, you dip three times your hand in two different basins of water. You do it first in the one, and then you go to the other basin because, well, now you're, you've got your defilement in that one, so now you're doing this two times. Well, they hadn't done that before they ate. So they're looking and they're saying, do y'all not keep the tradition of the elders? And this was Jesus' response. Let's keep reading verse 8. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let them be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down and many such things you do. So they found loopholes. First of all, they had all their traditions, right? We're going to keep the traditions because the traditions separate us as a people. We have commandments. And so this one, honor your father and mother. And essentially what Jesus is saying, when your father and your mother get to an old age and you are ripe in your life, it is now your responsibility to take care of them. So when you read the commandment, honor your father and mother, yes, it does mean that you are to take care of them as they age, just as they took care of us as we were little. Stacy, you've, you've got both of them. I'm going to leave it in your hands, okay? <laughs> Sorry, inside joke. I just, you know. But they found this loophole. So let's say you had wealth and you could say, well, now this wealth is now I declare it Corbin, which means I can't use it for you but I can use it for God. And so that, that was, they still had possession of it. They still controlled it, but they had this nice little loophole to where they thought, well, I don't have to keep that commandment. And Jesus is calling them out on that. So when it comes to worship, we got to be cautious not to just honor God with our lips and worship him in vain, teaching as doctrine, the commandments of men. Remember, you and I don't get to determine how we worship him. He has told us what is pleasing and acceptable worship. And I'll close with this quote from one particular guy. I really love the way that he puts this. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts and reforms our desires and rehabituates our love. Worship isn't just something we do. It's where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Now, I know not everyone can say this, but some of you can. How many of you, when you miss a worship service, something just doesn't feel right? I think a lot of us can say that. You know, Wednesday, I love Wednesdays. Probably my favorite time we get together, M mainly because, you know, we've, I, I just love my, my little Wednesday night class. We have good discussion. And, you know, you miss a Sunday, you miss a Wednesday, and you're just like, man, my whole week is just, it's out of, something just ain't right. Uh, and, you know, some people, some Christians have the attitude, well, we got to get up, we got to go to worship. Come on, everybody, get ready, we got to, you don't have to be here. 
You get to be here. You get to show submission to God. You get to deprive yourself. You get to do what pleases Him. That's what you get to do. Not only do you get to do it, but you should rush to want to do it. There was a, a gentleman years ago who was being attacked uh, in a car wash stall. I was in my uh, work van with, with a guy I was training, and we had driven by it, and he saw it. He said, I think somebody's being attacked. So I whipped back around to the other side, and no sooner than I stopped, he got out and ran over. And um, so I just park, and I get out, and I'm running over. I don't know what we're running to, but I'm like, if he's running that way, I'm going that way too. That's one of the few times that I ran. Uh, but this, this fellow who was, he was intoxicated on something, I don't know what, he was very tiny, but boy, he was strong as a bull. He had grabbed this old man and was trying to rob him because he had seen the old man come out of a bank. He had cashed a check, had about $1,200 on him. So he was like 2002, 2003, somewhere thereabouts. Uh, that was a lot more back then than it is today. You know, with that, you can fill up two bags of groceries today. But back then, you could fill up your whole house. But anyway. So he was trying to attack the man, and so, you know, the, the man was on his back, and he, was, he had the kung fu death grip on his belt. He was not, but the guy was starting to pull his pants off. We were like, Ugh. So I, you know, this guy, he was, he was, you know, covering the old man, trying to not let him harm him. And so I just reach around and grab the old boy's wrist and just rip him off. And then he starts to try to run, and so I grab his belt. And he's trying to run, and I'm like, yeah, you're not going anywhere, buddy. You know, and I thought he was going to turn and punch me, poke me in the eye, hit me in the throat. He turns and he's just trying to undo my hand. I'm like, that's how you know you're really high on something when you lack the basic self-defense skills. So I just gave him a little trip and he fell down and he was a small guy and I've not ever been small except when I was in the womb. So I just sat on him <laughs> until the police came because he wasn't going anywhere. So the police show up, you know, this, that and the other. So we, we are contacted uh, uh, and told when the court date is, so we have to go. And so we go, uh, this, this co-worker of mine and I, we go to the court that day in the event that they wish to take a statement or a testimony, whatever. Well, we're sitting there and we didn't recognize him, but that old man was sitting down from us and as people were coming and going, he recognized us and he, he was so, hey boys, how are y'all doing? Hey, we're doing great. And uh, he calls his buddy over and his buddy comes over and, and he goes, these are the boys that helped me. This, you know, let me tell you what they did. And he was so excited to tell his buddy about it. Well, so we sit there for a few hours and uh, the, the attorney comes and says, OK, here's what they're going to do. Are you OK with that? He said, I'm, yeah, I'm fine with that. And uh, they said, OK, you can go. So we're walking out talking to this fella. And and uh, he said, Guys, I would love to pay y'all back, but I'm not rich. We're like, no, man, you don't have to do anything. He's like, can I feed you lunch? Yeah, you can feed me lunch. So we go down to Shoney's downtown. And when the waitress comes up, he stops her. Hey, listen, I got to tell you what these two guys did. And I remember, go, I, I'm like, it's a little embarrassing, but I'm, you know, he's, he's so thankful. He, he wants his buddy to know. He wanted the waitress to know who none of us knew. And I'm thinking... Shouldn't we want to come and give the praise and adoration to God that he is deserving of? God, I just got to tell you how great you are. 
to praise you, to adore you, to exalt you above all that is. My feeble efforts at praising my God, I feel like, is akin to a four-year-old drawing a drawing for their parents, but the parent takes it and they go, did you do this on your own? Yeah, this is so good. I feel like that's probably the worship that I offer to the Lord. But we get to come here. We ought to want to be here because he is one who is so deserving of it all. Let's stand together and sing, please.